Um, I want to tell you a couple of things. Uh, so every year we have a year-end gift at High Point. I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But um, some of you, let me see if I can get that. I think there's a slides up there. So uh, a little while ago, we got a call from Marcio Sierra at Lighthouse Church. Lighthouse Church and school is just a little, it's like a little past Woodman's back there. And um, Marcio is a good friend of mine and of and of Mike's, and of our church. He's preached here before. So many of you know him. Um, their church has been struggling a lot more during COVID because a lot of their families had needs. They have school open just like we do. Um, their case is the same as ours. It'll be before the state Supreme Court on, um, on December 8th about whether or not we can keep our schools open. And um, so they're in the same boat with us. They're very close friends of ours. They had a lot of needs in their community. They asked if we would donate um, to help do um, Thanksgiving boxes for families there that just had, we're not going to have meals on Thanksgiving. And so our church ponied up a, a significant amount of money so that they could do this. You could just see in these slides just like how many cars, how many people showed up. And they were, they gave away an enormous amount of these Thanksgiving boxes to families within their community, within their school community, to further show the connection of the church and the gospel of Jesus with the schooling that they're doing and the holistic care of those families to draw them towards Christ. So um, we, I hope that you're, I hope you're pleased with that. I think it was a really great use of uh, our generosity, and uh, Marcio was incredibly thankful. In fact, he, uh, he wrote me a quick email. I want to thank you again for the support that you're sh you are taking as Hi High Point Church in supporting the Thanksgiving basket giveaway. Thanks to your efforts and the blessings from High Point Church, we were able to serve about 1,300 people, most of whom are part of the Hispanic community in the area. As you know, they've been greatly impacted by this pandemic. Even though it was a little disheartening to see the great number of people um, since the need has increased dramatically, it was also very encouraging to see the smiles of people as they receive their baskets and the joy that, of many volunteers as they serve the community. I'm pleased to let you know that, you, that we were able to raise all the funds needed in just a week and even got a little extra to organize a similar event in December, closer to Christmas time. Again, we will be working with Extended Hands Food Pantries for this event. May God continue to bless High Point as you are a light in Madison. God bless you. Marcio Sierra. Um, so we're also, the Elder Board is considering a significant financial gift because their, their school has, is, has been financially underwater. It's been really hard on schools during uh, the pandemic, and there's a lot of extra expenses. A lot of these families that can't afford turkeys also couldn't afford like a tablet or a computer for their kid, for kids that were going to be home for school or quarantined, and so they, they had to buy computers and things like that. Of course, there isn't government money for that. And so um, we're considering giving a gift to help them make their ends meet this year of some of the overages that you guys have given. So the year-end gift this year, um, for some of you who've been to High Point the whole 10 years I've been here, we've had year-end gifts that were like $125,000, $130,000 because we had a ton of stuff to give to. I don't know where people are at financially. I don't know what is generosity for you in this season. Um, statistics say about half of Americans have more money during COVID because they're spending less, but they still have their jobs and they're making all their money. And other people are like, they can hardly make ends meet. I don't know where you are and I don't know what generosity is for you. So we've put in what is normally our baseline, which is we give a gift to our staff members at the end of the year, and we give a gift to all of our international ministry families at the end of the year. Also, because the school has had such a hard run of it this year, it's been tough to be a teacher this year if the school is open. It's been, listen, it's been tough for the public school teachers teaching online, but it's been really tough for teachers who are doing it live and online, and the rules changing every week, and all of that. 
And so we wanted to give the teachers a full gift to this year. So we've included that for $10,000. And then um, we want to make sure that CareNet Ministry can keep its doors open for women who are experiencing unplanned pregnancies and who want to keep their children. We want to make sure that's fully funded, that those women have a place to go. And also we want to make sure that we support Selfless Ambition, which is a ministry that Henry Sanders is involved with that specifically targets kids that don't have food and things like that, that go to the public school system. And a lot of those kids are home now, but they still have similar needs, and they're kind of more lost in the system. And so we want to make sure that that gets funded too. Any overage over this 37, I mean, I hope you guys give $270,000. Any overage, um, we've split into percentages. A significant percentage is going to go to India. We, there are Christians, brothers, and sisters literally starving there. And we're just going to—and Mino, I asked Manohar, how much money can he metabolize and, like, get there without corruption to Christians than actually getting food? He's like, there's no limit. We, have, we know hundreds of pastors. They're all trustworthy. We can do this. So um, we're going to do that with a portion. A portion that will go to debt reduction for the church, and another one is going to go to something else I can't remember right now because I'm ill-prepared. So um, that's the year-end gift. Please just—what I always say is everybody give at least a dollar. Participate in the year-end gift. Figure out what is generous for you and give something. And usually together, if we all really ask what's generosity for us, we have plenty of money to be generous towards others. And that's really the goal of this, that people would be blessed. Does that make sense? All right, let's jump in to uh, God's Word. So let's—I'm uh, going to read Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 to 19. <clears throat> Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown Him as you have helped His people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that, you, so that your hope may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherited what had been promised. When God made a, his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by something greater than themselves. And an oath confirms what was said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging of his nature, of his purpose, very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us, may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Now, um, over the, the, the series that we're in right now, um, we're talking about what it means to wait for God or wait on the Lord. Um, last week, we talked about how it is suffering. Suffering is endured through hopeful anticipation, right? That, that we struggle under the weight of suffering under the curse. And the way we combat that is by actually availing ourselves of the anticipatory hope and the glory of God that's coming. And that is a counterweight to—you can't get rid of suffering. You can't get rid of the fact that you live under the curse right now. There's no way to do that. But there is a way to counterweight that and take that crushing weight off of your heart by actually ingesting the hope of glory and having a real anticipation in your heart that God offers in Christ. And that has to be active. You have to actively— anticipate and believe and avail yourself of those hopes. Does that make sense? Now, the second thing that we're going to look at this morning is that hope 
requires not just beauty, the beauty of glory, but the certainty of faith. So in one sense, hope is bringing into our hearts the fact that we are not just going to experience the present ugly. We're going to experience the future beauty, right? That's, there's plenty of beauty right now if we have eyes to see it. But the curse brings a lot of ugliness into existence. And the hope of glory is that we can see beauty that exists now in God's redemptive work, the beauty that still exists in creation even though it's marred, but a renewal of all that in future glory. And, and what, what that does is the beauty of it inspires us. We don't just need facts. Human beings to thrive need, need beauty. We need color. We need hope, right? Now, um, what you also need is certainty. Because if, if your hope isn't supported by the certainty of faith, it doesn't operate properly. In fact, it even starts to hurt you. That might sound weird that your hope can hurt you, but it can. Your hope can actually destroy your faith if it's not supported by the certainty of faith. It's necessary. When Paul says there's faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love, he says that because love is going to be eternal because when we're in God's presence, we won't have to hope for it. We won't have to believe because we'll see it, right? But what he knows is that in the present, all three have to be operative to work together. Faith supports hope. And only when you hope in the beauty of future glory are you self-forgetful enough to sacrifice to love others. Does that make sense? And so you can see this throughout this passage, right? So if you were um, following the, uh, the devotional this week, the first reading on Monday was Genesis 15, right? And God makes this promise to Abraham that he's going to make him the father of many nations. And Abraham has suffered a long time. He's really old. It's kind of impossible for him to have children. And so he says to God, how can I, sovereign Lord, Lord how can I know that this is going to happen? And God actually says, okay, offer the sacrifice. And then he passes through it, makes a covenant promise with Abraham. He takes an oath that he will do it, and he makes a promise. He does it three ways. He tells him the promise. He makes a covenant agreement with him through the sacrifice. And then he says later, I made an oath to Abraham with uplifted hand. Now, why did he do that? He didn't do that to make himself serious about it. He did it so that Abraham could be certain, right? In the book of Hebrews, it says that that, that same dynamic where God overpromises and acts and does all kinds of things so that we can actually know. He's like, that's what it's like now, except more in Christ. That God has intended to act in such a way that our faith can have what I'll just call this morning operative certainty. Like, I realized that if we were all in philosophy 101, and it was our job in order to pursue wisdom to pretend to doubt, and that if we doubted everything that you could possibly doubt, that we would probably say it's impossible to be philosophically certain that God exists and has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ. But you see, God doesn't care anything about that. Right? That doesn't necessarily have any relationship to the truth at all or reality. It's a thought experiment. It's, a, it's as ethereal as anything else. What, what God is interested in is the kind of certainty that makes us believe, that makes us think something is real, that makes us actually act. That's what matters. It's operative certainty. It's, it's certainty that moves. Does that make sense? And throughout these passages, he says, look, God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear so that we, the result could be— whoops, sorry, wrong button. So the result would be— I went two slides forward. Can we go back? One more. Okay. Right button. Okay, there we go. So, so that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. What I want you to see is, is that though we're all going to face doubts, I'm going to talk about that in a second, though we're all going to face doubts throughout our lives, it's real, it's going to happen, it's going to be a thing, okay? 
What the Bible actually teaches is that much of our doubt comes from our own self-delusion, what we can't see now because of our present state under the curse. We're not looking at the world from the outside. We're looking at it from the inside. There's lots of reasons why doubt will exist. But God has done everything that he's done, showing himself and showing us the truth so that we could be operatively certain. We could have faith that could then support hope, which could bring into the soul the weight of glory so that we have the beauty necessary to live under the ugliness of the curse, lives that are beautiful, and hearts that are filled with joy. That's his goal for us. Now think about that. Would you rather just have every, every suffering taken away so that weak as we are, we could be happy? Or would you have God transform you in the midst of suffering in a marred creation to make you the kind of substantial creature that in under the curse, you can have joy. And imagine how that will multiply when the curse is then taken away. Now, um, I said before that um, your hope can actually hurt you if it's not supported by the certainty of faith. There's this thing of diving called barotrauma, and I want to argue that— um, that um, There's a way that hope can hurt you if it's not supported by faith. This is why it's so important to avail yourself not just of hope and future glory so that you can avail yourself of that beauty. You need to avail yourself also of the certainty that God offers in faith because the two necessarily work together. Okay, let me try to explain this if you're not familiar with barotrauma. Every real scuba diving um, mask has a nose piece. Now, that's partly because if you get your mask taken off underwater and then you put it back on underwater, it's full of water. And the only way to get water out of it is to blow air into it. The air pushes the water out, and you have a nice clean mask, which is fantastic. You get 100 feet of water. It's happened to me before. Now, there's, a, there's another, another reason. Um, when you go underwater, if you're swimming in the water with a mask, you're in an environment that is, you're unsuited to. Do you understand? It's like living under the curse. You're not actually created to live under the curse. You're created to live in the glory of God's good creation and in his final glory. You're not really suited for this. That's why we struggle so much. But when you put a mask on and you go underwater, it's great. In fact, I love the water. I love diving. It's one of the things I so miss about living in Florida is I, I actually preferred to be in the water with a mask. You take the mask away, it's not much fun. You can't see anything. Everything's blurry. You can't help. You can't do stuff, right? The mask is critical. Now, if you swim around in six feet of water or two feet of water, swim around all day, all day and the hope pushes out the inhospitable thing, and you can, you can operate and you can function totally fine in it. But— you put scuba tank on and you start going underwater deeper and deeper and deeper. That inhospitable environment increases in weight. It pressurizes. And it begins to put pressure on your mask. Now, the air inside your mask is losing pressure as you go because it wasn't pressurized air, right? So what happens is your mask turns into a suction cup. It starts pressurizing on your face and it starts sucking your eyeballs out of their sockets, which is not fun. Right? Now, it can like turn your eyes into ovals temporarily, but what it'll start to do is it'll, it'll start to pull and suck on your capillaries in your eyes, and it'll start bursting capillaries in your eyes, and ultimately it can actually burst your eyeball and you can go blind in the worst cases of it. Okay? There are vomit bags in the T-Rack in front of you. Now, inexperienced divers usually do one of two things. Either they'll drop their weight belt and they'll go right back up to the surface. They can't take the pressure. That would be kind of like a Christian who goes out into the real world, is facing all of the weight of doubt, 
that's coming in from facing more and more and more in their life, and they go, I can't take this, and they just retreat to like a little cloistered religious community where everybody just says religious stuff to each other, and you don't deal with anything. You just go back up to the service where there's no, you go where there's no, wherever there's no pressure. Now, secular people do this too. They go out in their philosophy, can't handle their beliefs, can't handle, and the morality can't handle the real world, and they find some little online cluster or some little political party or some little thing where they can all tell each other some simplistic little truth, and they don't have to bear the weight of the real world. Just chop in your weight belt. Go to the surface. You don't have to deal with anything. You also don't get to see the reef. You also don't get to make the dive. You, you don't get to live, right? Now, the second thing that divers often do is they take off the mask because they can't make the pressure stop. The pressure's there. The pressure's just going to keep increasing, right? So what do you have to do to save yourself? You can't live with both, right? Because with the mask and the pressure, your eyes are going to explode. Like something has to give— Psychologists call this cognitive dissonance. It's when you have two opposite truths in your heart that can't both be true, that you both kind of believe, and they're tearing you apart, right? Morally, this happens when you try to, like, keep sinning because you like it, but you also know that God wants you to be godly, and you realize that there's some—there's true beauty to real morality, and you're kind of caught between the two, like a lot of young people especially, but some of us all our lives. And it, it tears you in two. You feel like two people, and you're like, you hate yourself, but you don't want to give up either one. It's a terrible place to live, right? But it's also true in terms of your faith. You can have doubts that are pressing in on you. And because you also believe in the hope of the glory of God, you have this religious belief that you hold, but you also have this like weight of feeling of doubt coming in from the world, and it's pressurizing you and pressurizing you. And you realize if you got rid of the hope, you'd be fine. The hope is actually hurting you, right? And the hope isn't really hurting you. The situation is misusing the hope to hurt you. And so the instinct is to tear off the mask and throw it away which would be tantamount to somebody giving up on their faith, right? Because they can't take it anymore. And you see, if, if you believe in a hope of eternal life— so this is what happens with young people who they go to church, right? And they like the idea of going to heaven. So they, they accept the hope of Jesus, right? But they don't really have the certainty of faith in their heart. And then they go out to school or they go to college or they go somewhere else, and people dump a bunch of doubts on them. Or they go, we go out in the real world and we live a real life and like— bad stuff starts to happen, or you face more difficult problems, or you see that there's real malevolence out there, and you're like, this is terrible, right? And you kind of want the hope, but your faith isn't anywhere near strong enough to face those doubts, right? And it starts tearing you apart. You want the religious story of going to heaven and all that, blah, 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 blah. And you want to know that bad people like Hitler are going to something like hell. But it, that seems too simple. It seems too good for the bad stuff that's going on. And so you, the only thing—you can't get rid of the pressure— so you throw away the mask, right? Doubt has used hope to destroy your faith because the human heart can't be torn in two forever. Now here's the thing. What do divers do? What do you do when you're 16 feet down and your, your mask starts to pressurize? Do you just like let your eyeballs explode? No. You see, the whole time you've been breathing in pressurized air through your tank. You've got pressurized air in your lungs. You're just breathing in and out through your mouth because that's all you can do because that's where your regulator is. You've got all the air you need to reinflate your mask already inside of you. You just have to blow it out your nose. That's it. That's all you got to do. One-fiftieth of a breast will reinflate your mask with pressurized air, take all of the discomfort away, and you can continue in the environment you're not suited to with all the clarity of hope, with all the strength that you need. And when you go down another 20 feet, it starts pressurizing again, you just blow in a little bit more air. But here's the thing. You've got to blow in the air. You have to avail yourself of the certainty of faith that God is offering in the revelation of his Christ and in every other way he does it. And if you don't, 
your hope is going to get pressurized and crushed, and you're going to be torn in two between doubt and hope, and ultimately it will tear you apart. And the thing that you will do to make it stop is you will either retreat to a community that will tell you you want to hear and live a shallow life, religiously or irreligiously, or you'll pull off the mask and throw it away. When all you ever had to do was exhale a little certainty through the nose of faith. But if you don't think of it, if you don't realize it, if you—if doubt creates panic, but you think you're thinking rationally, then you'll do something rash. And it's really unhelpful. Now, in the scriptures, um, there's a lot of talk about doubt, right? And if you want to hear a little bit more about this, um, podcast episode 110. Um, I do like a whole hour on the different kinds of unbelief and doubt and all of how they all relate to each other and all that um, on the Engage Equip podcast. But um, there's three things very simply that the Bible says about doubt. One is, is that honest doubt is received with mercy, right? Abraham's doubt is received with mercy here. Mary's doubt when she's supposed to have a child, when she's a virgin, is met with mercy. It says in the book of um, Jude that— um, that one of the things that we should do as we're, as we're living in the world is we need to be merciful to those who doubt as the church. When people doubt here in the church, we should be merciful to those who doubt, right? Doubt is a universal human experience, and it's, it's one that when it's honest should be treated with mercy. Now, the Bible also argues that almost that a lot—most of our doubts are not really that honest, right? Now, the second thing it says is that um, minimal faith is necessary to please God. It says in Hebrews 11 that without faith, it is impossible to please God. But in order to please Him, you have to, one, believe that He exists, and two, that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. So if the faith of the angels is 100% faith, how much faith do you have to have to please God? And the answer is enough to make it operative. And if you don't know Jesus already, what would be operative if you didn't? And the answer is that you would believe God is worth seeking that he's there, and that he's worth seeking. And in Scripture, God takes personal responsibility to make sure that those who honestly seek him—emphasis on the word honestly, italicized, underlined, highlighted—honestly seek him, he takes responsibility for them finding him. Now again, in Scripture, you need to realize that not very many people who say they're honestly seeking him does God believe are honestly seeking him. Right? But minimal operative faith— is that we seek him because we believe he's there. And then the third thing is this, that God has given us reliable proofs in order to believe with operative certainty. That that has been God's work. That's what he wants. That's what he cares, that's what he cares about. That's what he's doing. Like, be, don't believe the idea that that's not available to you. It's very easy in like scientific and technological times where we, we, we sort of disbelieve all of the old truths, so to speak. We're like, well, we've got all these new hacks and no, you know, none of that stuff is certain anymore. We can't even tell where it came from. Who even really knows? There's a lot of that nonsense out there. What Scripture says over and over again is that God, in space-time history, in numerous ways—I'll go over three in just a second—has specifically operated so that human beings can be operatively certain that He exists, of His goodwill towards us, of His promises of salvation, and that He will ultimately execute them all. Let's just go over three really quickly, right? One is in creation. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament the work of his hands. It it says that straightforwardly. That if we saw creation with clean eyes, we would see it declaring that a God exists. Romans 1 says that 
since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities and his divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been made so that men are without excuse. Now that's a negative statement, but just as positive statements have negative implications, negative statements have positive implications. If God says that he has been so displayed in his divine qualities and infinite nature in creation so that we're without excuse, what does that mean? It means that if, if we stand morally without excuse, it means that the revelation to us has been clear. And if the revelation to us has been clear, it means we can know it and see it. We don't have to be without excuse. We don't have to be in trouble at all. We can just believe. Right? The second is in redemptive history. That is that through the story of how God has spoken and shown himself in his special verbal revelation and in his actions in time, space, history with human beings, he has given us ways to know. A big way is that he gave us tons of prophecies that were very specific about Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection hundreds of years before Jesus was born. I can't say this better than I've already said it in a video on a website called I Found Peace. I want you to watch this. It's like a five-ish minute video where I make this argument about Old Testament prophecies and the birth of Christ and what they mean. Can you guys run that? One of the amazing things to think about relative to Jesus around Christmas time is that he fulfilled dozens of Old Testament prophecies. Now, I know when you bring up the Old Testament prophets, you can think of things that we're skeptical about, like fortune tellers. Like, is it like that? It's not. I mean, fortune tellers are very different. Fortune tellers are, um, they're pretty vague in what they say. They're usually talking about the very near future. They're usually using some tricks, frankly, and they're also self-interested. They're getting something out of it, right? They're being mysterious. They're getting you to pay money for it. The Old Testament prophets are very different from that, right? They are um, very specific. They are talking about the distant future. Um, they, they aren't using any tricks. They're just saying what God told them. And you can tell that because they're not getting anything out of it. In fact, most of them got killed for being prophets. Now, some people have said, well, the fact that there are very specific prophecies about Jesus from hundreds of years before he was born, that, that has to be an inside job. Like, somebody must have written those into the prophets after Jesus was born so that it would look like Jesus was prophesied about long before his birth. Except that's really not possible to believe anymore. But in the 1950s, there was a discovery called the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the deserts in Israel. And in the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were a bunch of different scrolls or, or ancient books found. And there were, among the different books that were found, were the Old Testament prophets. And these manuscripts were before the birth of Jesus. Quite a significant time. And so it showed with conclusive evidence that the prophets as they are today in our Bibles is virtually identical to what they were in the time before Jesus. And there's no reason to believe that they had changed between then and when the prophets originally wrote them. So the prophets said what they said hundreds of years before Jesus was ever born. Now, some people have said, okay, wait, but if Jesus read the prophets and he knew their predictions, he could fulfill some of those himself, right? Couldn't he have just done the things the prophets said and then he'd look like the Messiah because he did all the things? It's plausible in a way, but the problem with it is Jesus fulfills so many Old Testament prophecies, a significant number of them are things he didn't have any control over. For example, it was prophesied in, in these prophets the line Jesus would be born in, that he would be a son of Abraham and of Judah and of King David. He couldn't control that. In the book of Micah, it's prophesied the very town he'd be born in, the town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem wasn't Joseph and Mary's hometown, and it was a long distance from where they lived, and it was a sparsely populated town. If you were going to guess the town the Messiah would be born in, you'd pick something like Jerusalem or something like more historically important, like Hebron, right? But Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Um, additionally, it says that Jesus would be born poor, that he would be, go in flight as a refugee to Egypt long before he had any control over it. 
And there's a number of other prophecies like that that are specific things about Jesus. For example, that his mother would be a young woman and a virgin, that he would be her firstborn son. And obviously, if he was born in the line of David, he would be Jewish. If you take all these circumstantial things that Jesus had no control over, and you add up the probability that he would fulfill all of them, though he had no ability to affect any of it, the odds against him fulfilling these prophecies is pretty astronomical. It could lead one to believe that that could only be orchestrated by God. But then you might ask, well, why? Who cares? Why would God prophesy all these, like, like incidental things about Jesus' life that don't seem to matter all that much, like the town he's born in? And the answer to that question, I think, is if, he, if God prophesies things that we can verify, that we can know by the details of history they actually happened, maybe we'll believe the other prophecies Jesus fulfilled that are about what Jesus' death and resurrection and life means and means for us today. So, for example, um, it says in the book of Isaiah, chapter 53, that, that the Messiah would die for our transgressions, that by his wounds and under the punishment of his own death, we would be healed, that he would purchase for us the forgiveness of God if we would put our trust in God. In Isaiah 55, it says that anybody who is a, who is a sinner, who's like lost and broken by sin and given over to things that the Bible calls wicked, that if we would turn to God, that he would freely pardon us because of this Messiah. In chapter 54 in the book of Isaiah, it says that God would create a new nation of adopted children that would be this thing that we later learn is called the church of people that he'd redeemed and made into a new family to follow him and tell the world about it. In the book of Joel, it says that in the days of the Messiah, God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, that is, all people who would turn to the Messiah and believe in him, and that God's spirit would work in us incredible things. In the book of Ezekiel, it says that through the work of the Messiah, that God would take the heart of stone in us, our hardened willfulness, the, the, the part of us that doesn't want to serve God, would be open to his love and changed by his gracious generosity, that he would take out that stone, that heart, heart of stone, and give us a heart of flesh, one that is open to what is good and believes in the truth and that loves what is beautiful and right. And that all of these things and many more, that, that we would be with Christ when he returns and that we would escape judgment, and that we would be his forever in what we call heaven in the kingdom and city of God, that all of these things are part of the heritage of what this Messiah, Jesus, brought about. And that's why he's so amazing. It's why we can see him as that amazing at Christmas time, and it's why the Old Testament prophets are incredibly relevant to that. So he has tried to give us certainty in creation, just the world that he made. In his time and space history, in his interactions with human beings, he's told a story with us, including these prophetic words, that were fulfilled hundreds of years later to give us certainty. And then lastly, he is double and triple promised in the person of Jesus himself. Right? Jesus is himself the promise and action and oath. He is himself the statement, the covenant, and the oath with lifted up hand. I mean, think about this. He is that he came in the incarnation— He taught and explained everything Jesus wanted us to know so that we could be absolutely certain. It was accompanied by a miraculous ministry that was unforeseen anywhere in the history of the entire world, even up until the present. Demonstrating the truth of what he taught, he demonstrated his compassion for us and his interest in us and his willing to die for our sins while being treated that way by sinners just like us. And then he demonstrated on oath that he would fulfill it all by rising from the dead. Now ask yourself something. Without being petty, what more do you want? What more could somebody say to you or demonstrate to you? Because here's the thing. When I, when I talk to a lot of people about 
their faith, especially people who have lost their faith or who are reticent about coming to faith. You know, most of them believe in God. It's not like they don't believe in God. They believe in God just generally, vaguely. What they don't believe is that God has made definite statements about, that, that could be accorded like promises with content that we can believe in and that we can live by and that we can know are going to happen. It's that certainty that they reject. It's not the idea of God they reject, right? It's not so much what Hebrews is getting at. It's not so much the proof of God, though he claims that all of these things demonstrate his existence. But even more than that, what he, what he knows the human heart fails in is the belief that anybody will keep their promises. You know why? Because we don't. We are all a bunch of liars. We're fickle. We're like, we have tempers. We say things we don't mean all the time. We even think thoughts in our own head we don't even think. We tell people we like stuff we don't even like. We follow the crowd whatever it's expedient. We don't want to be kicked out of good society because we believe something they don't think is okay. We'll do anything to be accepted. We'll turn our back on somebody if other people will accept us. We are betrayers down to our guts and the heart of our liver. We're betrayers. And we don't believe that the God who created all of this and us is a word keeper. And so he has tried to promise so many times in so many different ways so that even we would believe. And he's laid it all out and he's like, there's nothing more I can do. I've told you in a hundred different ways. I've told you with blood. I've told you with resurrection from the dead. I've told you with prophetic words hundreds of years before the Christ was born. I've, I've told you in every molecule, in every biological system, in every mathematical constant that exists in the world. I've told you a hundred million times so that negatively you have no excuse, but positively you have no reason to turn away. You can believe. You can come. You can avail yourself not just of the— of the hope, the beauty of future glory, but of the certainty of God's truthful promise in the present. And you can pressurize the mask of hope, and you can live in the bottom of the depths of the highest pressures of the doubt that comes from the weight of difficulty of the real world as it is. And instead of being destroyed by it or broken by it, you can look and you can see with spiritual eyes through a clear vision, and you can act for good, and you can thrive in an environment that you're not suited to until that environment is taken away forever and you are released into the weight of eternal glory. Believe. Believe more. Believe more fully. Confess that you believe crappily. Throw away the doubts that aren't good arguments. It's just the pressure of the curse. It's just living under the ugly just weighs on you. You've got to blow certainty back into that mask of hope so that you can see, so that it's not pressurizing you, so that you're free, so that you can act, so that you can enjoy the experience until you're in the glory. Don't, don't let the certainty God gives you and offers you in so many ways pass. Grab a hold of it right now, all the more, and every day, right? Because just like only operative hope weighs against the curse, only operative faith lifts the pressure of doubt.
God, as we give ourselves to you in these next moments, as we sing songs of faith, as we take communion, and we profess your broken body and your shed blood as a proclamation until you return in glory. And as we talk with each other, and as we do these things, help us to believe, to accept in our hearts, and to release in our emotions the certainty that you've promised us. Help us to to enjoy the heritage that you have purchased in such a costly way. And help it to be for the good of all people. And for our good in Jesus' name.